it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. All right, welcome back to the LaneCast Ag Podcast as we continue to have our agriculture conversations from individuals impacting the agriculture industry. And we are reviving a series that we have done in the past, and that is the At the Kitchen Table Conversations. And today I am honored to be sitting uh, at the kitchen table with uh, cattle producer Ed Lord. And Ed, uh, we're actually at your family's operation in the Judith Basin. Uh, how are things going for you here this, uh, the fall of 2021? Actually, it's going very well. Um... I came to the Judith Basin from the Flint Creek Valley, uh, ranched over there for 50-some years. At that time, uh, I didn't think that either one of my children were going to ranch, and so I sold that ranch and bought a farm ranch in the Judith Basin area, and it's worked out very, very well. I have most of the farm ground is leased out, but... Fortunately, about five years ago, my daughter uh, and son-in-law came back, and they are managing uh, the whole South unit right now. So, and 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 things up until this year, it, things were very good, and but the drought really hurt the Judith Basin. Yep, definitely. And just uh, for our listeners, to uh, Flint Creek is over by Phillipsburg, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so. From Hobson to, well, Buffalo is technically the, the mailing address, but the Judith Base and Charlie Russell country, as I like to refer to it as. Uh, so that's just a hop, skip, and a jump for you, isn't it, just uh, from, from Hobson to, to Peaberg? Well, it's a, about four and a half hours. And <laughs> I make the trip pretty often. I The the real pleasure I get in life is come over and helping uh, my daughter Audrey and Stan, you know, improve the place and, and continually to... Uh, increase the carrying capacity, and just, just make things better all the time. So, Ed, as we look at uh, just your involvement in the industry, and, and we will talk about, obviously, the Sea uh, Hanging U brand that uh, somebody is going to be able to purchase and support the future of the Montana Stock Growers Foundation. But for our listeners out there, I just want to learn more about your involvement in cattle production and being a steward of the land, and also just... Uh, how you got your start in the business uh, growing up there in southwestern Montana? Uh, did you know you were always going to be in the livestock business? I did. I did. My my dad bought the first little ranch that we had at Shonkin, Montana, which is not a long ways from the, the Judith Basin. Um, I had my first horse, a, a pony that my my folks bought for me at. Uh, at, at about the age of five, but I, I always and just programmed my whole life so that I could branch. And my dad grew up as an orphan, so he expected a lot, and, and, and I had responsibility from the time I went to grade school. I mean, I was, I was riding, working cattle. Uh, probably I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but, <laughs> uh, but I had, had a lot of fun doing it. And so, uh, and and this things progressed from there, and I uh, graduated from high school from Phillipsburg, did a short hitch in the Navy, and my folks really wanted me to have a college education, so I made a business uh, going to school and got got through the University of Montana in about uh, nine quarters, and so uh, 
and and then came back and and got married while I was uh, at that time. And my wife Connie and I took over the Phillipsburg Ranch operation in 1960. So uh, going from the Judith Basin down to Phillipsburg, when did that move occur? When, uh, we bought this uh, the Phillipsburg or the uh, Judith Basin uh, ground in two. 2008. Okay. Uh, the January 2008. Yes. But for your dad, you said uh, you guys originally were up here and then migrated down there. What 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 took you down there originally? Okay, that was that's a that's an interesting story. My dad was a product of the dirty 30s. He really wanted an irrigated place. And uh, and that the Phillipsburg place did have very very good water rights and lots of water, a lot of irrigation potential. And so I I always joked that we traded our cowboy boots for irrigating boots when we went to the Fenstrick Valley. <laughs> so being down in that part of the world, for for all of Montana's uh, history, the, the beginning of Montana's history, that, that was mine country. Right. And coming in and ranching there, what, what was it like uh, uh, coming in really on the tail end of the mining boom in southwest Montana and ranching as well? Yeah, and, and you make a good point that, uh, ranch, this, the, particularly silver, was still going. And then Phillipsburg kind of has a unique situation. But they, at one time, that area produced 90% of the world's black manganese. Now, black manganese, it's, at that time, was uh, one of the big things they used it for was batteries for crank phones. And, uh, and so, and then, but then World War II came and then pink manganese, which is uh, used in the production of steel, was, was big. And then, and then things kind of tapered off. And then the, the timber industry, Phillipsburg had three sawmills at one time. And, uh, and then, but that, that died off. And then, then there was no sawmills. And but the ranching industry stayed pretty steady, except that it changed because there were f- quite a few smaller operations, and they were bought out by people who had uh, money. F- uh, one one guy came in that uh, from the oil business and bought five different small places, put it together. Nothing, and that and that happened in several places. So the, the ranches are that are there are much larger and uh and and several of them are owned by out-of-state interests that are run by managers well i I, and uh, this is again uh, as i mentioned before we started our our conversation i'll get off into the weeds on this but you look at mining and you look at timber uh two huge part of montana's history and development mining is uh you don't see much of it uh, anymore in the state, and, and mining has become so much more advanced and more uh, environmentally friendly from what, what it truly was back, especially in southwest Montana, the Butte, the Anaconda, the Phillipsburg. Yes, there was a lot of pollution back then. We know that. And then you look at the timber industry and the lack of timber mills that we have across Montana and forest management playing a role and of course, uh, you're probably very familiar with uh, Endangered Species Act and how that impacted logging. And and of course, logging is a part of agriculture. The U.S. Forest Service is a part of USDA for a reason. So I bring that up. Agriculture is that third prong. Um, what do ag producers have to learn from, especially the logging industry, 
and how uh, we we don't see a lot of those uh, Western Montana logging towns anymore supported by logging. Uh, and you're right. Uh, one thing that really has helped Phillipsburg, it's a tourist town now. And so, uh, and, and thing, again, things are changing. Uh, and after we sold the ranch, we built, built a new house and a small subdivision right outside of town. And, and that's growing. And uh, like every place else, uh, the price of houses uh, in, in Phillipsburg are outrageous for 100-year-old houses. Uh, we have two large employers now. Uh, ranch at Rock Creek uh, is, a, is a high-end guest ranch. It employs about 180 people in the summertime. Discovery Basin in the wintertime uh, employs a lot of young people. And housing is a huge, big problem right now, even in Phillipsburg. Uh, so, and obviously, it, there's not a lot of ranchers left. Uh, in, in the area because, like I said before, the ranchers are all much larger than, than they used to be. And so uh, it's just, I think it's happening all over. Well, and I'm going to probably circle back to, the, to, to the, those talking points here in a bit. But uh, as you made your, your, your career, uh, Connie and yourself and your, and your girls down in Phillipsburg, what, uh, how, how did your ranching operation change from the time that uh, you and Connie were there to, to the time when, when you, uh, you you sold that that place. What were some of those key things, the breeds, maybe the environmental aspect of things? What were those things that, that uh, really stick out in your mind of uh, what worked, what didn't work? Okay. Um, Dad had always, he knew that you could probably make, do better with stocker cattle than you could uh, cows and calves. And so we, our ranch over there did both. We had a force permit that, that cows and calves worked better on because the cattle get used to running it. But, but early on, uh, we started, uh, dad started buying, you know, light calves. We would winter them and summer them on, and particularly on this irrigated ground that we had. Uh, but, any of you that have done it know that flood irrigating, it requires a lot of time. You have to do it uh, consistently. And probably the thing that really changed my life as much as anything is buying center pivots. And uh, between our, and our operation at one time, I had as many as eight center pivots. I had five in the home place and three on a, another ranch that we bought. Uh, and so, and, and that changed my life. Uh, they, they work night and day, they get all the high spots, and they don't complain about the long hours. And, and <laughs> so, uh, and it, it really improved our production, made life much more pleasant in the summertime than, than I, because when I flood irrigated, I never could do as well as I wanted to and still worked all the daylight hours to do it. So obviously, uh, we, we do see quite a, a bit more uh, uh, new and approved irrigation methods even today. And on the, the cattle genetics side of things, what uh, were some of the changes that uh, you implemented over the years or maybe you went back to? What, 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 uh, what really sticks out to you? Again, our emphasis was on stalker cattle. And so 
uh, and we changed. I mean, we started out with like everybody else. We had Hereford cattle, and then and then started using black bulls for crossbreeding, and eventually went to all all black cows. Uh, sunburn tits were a huge big problem with Hereford cattle in that country. The you know you'd have a lot of snows in May, and uh, and that bright sunshine reflecting off back off the snow. Uh, I. I milked and used a lot of bag balm uh, <laughs> in my days, but but black cows, you know, they had smaller bags kind of tucked up underneath and didn't have the sunburn tit problem that the co- Hereford cattle did. Uh, and Hereford cattle changed. I uh, had a neighbor by the name of Mitchell Muniz who uh, worked for Governor Thornton, and he his pictures on the front of Life magazine one time. He showed the grand champion steer at uh, Denver. The steer was about as high as his belt buckle and, uh, and, and then stood in a lot of straw. So uh, and that, was the, that was the ideal, yeah, I'm going to say, in the 50s. And, then, and then, then they got into a dwarfism problem. And then, then the whole industry, uh, when they started using... Uh, Continental cattle, the whole industry changed. Then everybody tried to make them as big as they could. The Grand Champion steer was easy to judge. You just did it with a tape, tape measure. And, <laughs> and the, the, the taller, the better. Uh, then, then people figured out, well, that wasn't quite right either. And so we're, we're backed off a little. Uh, probably our cows are too big now. Uh, the the car- carcasses are not as useful as they used to be at smaller so that's some of the changes that I've seen in my lifetime. Now, right now, when uh, you read the paper or you watch the news, um, obviously, I, I'm on Facebook, and you see a lot of dissension uh, out, especially in the farm and ranch sectors, um, talking about all the issues that we have. And there is a lot of issues, particularly impacting the livestock sector from Packing capacity, uh, problems with uh, in discussions around price discovery and transparency. What, uh, uh, from your start to now, how have the issues escalated more as media has changed its form and communication? Uh, well, <laughs> bad stuff and good stuff can get distributed awful fast. And, and so, and and a lot of stuff that flies around. I mean, one thing about Facebook is you can say anything, and 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 you can read anything on the internet you want to. Uh, not all of it's true, and so uh, you have to be, you know, very careful about about what really influences you. And and you've got to, in the cattle business, I think. Uh, many people make the mistake of not looking at the big picture. I mean, uh, what we the cattle business started. We produced uh, cattle for their hides, and then and then they started eating them. And they felt uh, when the buffalo were gone, and they thought, well, they this is pretty good. But uh, but obviously they were finished on grass. I I can remember I can remember three year old steers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then then the norm got to be two-year-old steers. Well, then pretty soon there weren't any of them left. They were because these cattle were uh, uh, were 
being finished in feedlots, and, and we didn't have any of those in Montana, so everybody produced cattle that would be sent to Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, uh, and so th things changed. Uh, and then, then the yearling operations, most people, their calves weren't real big, so they, you know, might weigh 400 pounds if you're lucky, and they kept them over a winter and sold, sold yearlings because, because particularly in western Montana, growing season's pretty short, but those yearling cattle will really gain well for a short period of time, and so you end up with the right size of a feedlot animal uh, off grass. And then those people that stayed uh, with, uh, that are still in uh, producing calves, or a good share of them, are uh, calving in February, trying to get those cattle big enough because the secret to selling ca uh, calves is to produce cattle that will finish in, in April because the whole country calves in the spring and there's and June gets full of uh, fat, fat cattle and all summer long but but if you can high, uh, produce high gaining cattle that will grade uh, by April then that's that's a pretty good product and as you mentioned looking at the big picture a, a lot of the time those of us in agriculture we're working all day we have a lot of stress on our minds and when we see corn prices are up because exports to China are hitting record highs and that's impacting the cattle markets. Um, this past spring, that was the, the big reaction from producers that the world was ending because of those corn prices. And folks really got dramatic, in my opinion, on, on social media because of that. And, and again, the drought aside, especially up here, we know this drought and the input costs have really impacted producers. But you know, you were talking, you uh, you were showing me the article in the National Cattlemen publication about the trend in, in processing and harvesting. What, uh, I guess, what are your opinions right now on the the issues impacting our, our packers and in the capacity and the prices in the marketplace over the past few years? Well, I, a couple of things. We have to believe what, what was put together about... I think it was 17 people who really understand the cattle business, and they all seem to come to the same conclusion that that we have uh, we don't have enough packing capacity now to simply to kill the cattle that are being offered. And so, but that's changing, and and even government has recognized that. And here lately, Congress has. Uh, come up with a lot of money, I think about a half a billion dollars or $500 million to help build smaller plants to, uh, and there is a, there is a trend toward grass fat cattle with the gen, if you get the right genetics, you, and, and it works better in climates that have a longer green grass season than we do. Uh, and like out on the coast, those some of those smaller uh, farmers are doing really well because they, you know, they have green grass for quite a long time. We don't have green grass. The official growing season in Phillipsburg was 55 days uh, <laughs> that were frost-free. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to have, produce grass-fed cattle in such a short 
uh, period of time that we have. But there are a lot of people who are doing quite a bit on grass, finishing on grain and, and, and selling uh, more directly to the consumer. I, I think that trend is going to continue. People seem to think that they really want to know the full story and people are taking advantage of that. And therefore, we need some more smaller uh, packing plants that can uh, that can handle those cattle in an efficient sort of a way. So, and uh, in in your view of things, so many people are reacting to that uh, shortage of packing plants because there is four big packers. But why have producers not come together before, or local business people, and had an effective plan for a smaller plant of a few hundred head per week or five head per week, depending on if it's a medium, large, or smaller locally owned butcher shop? When, when uh, obviously it has to be profitable. What, uh, could you just, uh, from your experience in that scene, especially like in Colorado, the smaller family-owned plants getting bought up by the JBSs of this world, when in a po- where, where did we come to that point where it's not profitable and people sell out and then we're stuck with these, uh, example, the four big packers? Does, does it, it should have the government stepped in back then to help with these smaller plants? What, what is your opinion on okay. that over the past 20, 30 uh, I, years of packing? I think maybe the government could have done a little bit better job preventing the the uh, monopoly or whatever you want to call the the fact that the that the four plants got as big as they are, but but you have I mean they are so efficient that it's it's unbelievable. I've had the pleasure through my uh, of going through six different major packing plants in two countries, both in Canada and the United States. And it's just incredible. I mean, a big plant uh, running two shifts, 16 hours a day, they can, they can process over 6,000 cattle. You do the math, and that if the line is running steady, they're going by at six and a quarter, uh, uh, about, about six and a quarter a minute, and obviously the line can't run steady. I mean, it gets stopped for some reason. But, but still, those cattle are flying by there about, about seven of them a, a minute. And, and you, each person has a separate job. It might be one, skinning out one hind leg or, or just splitting the carcasses in half. I mean, it's broken down. The modern packing plants just worked like Henry Ford, only backwards. Henry Ford was putting cattle or putting cars together, and major packing plants are taking cattle apart. Yep. Well, and uh, I I toured uh, the JBS Greeley plant a few years back um, on a tour, and uh, it was impressive to see you know those beeves come in, and I, I believe if if they didn't hang for two weeks or more, they could. They could, by the time they killed to the time they cut, it could be 45 minutes total if they were going to put them in the box that day. And that's, that's pretty dang impressive. And, and, and I recognize we need that, that much capacity processing 6,000 head per day. But as we see more and more locally uh, sourced food and everything, we do need these small packers. Uh, but, uh, how how do we as an industry and local communities continue to support these small butcher shops or medium-sized 
in smaller plants. Uh, is this a, is this a trend we're just going to see because of COVID and the, and the issue right now, or or how do we as an industry continue to support these even when maybe they can't pay as much if they're buying directly from a producer? How how do we keep these local guys going on the packing end? It, it is a problem. I. Lane, I don't have the answers. I can show you an example. There was a group of people that really wanted to build a multi-species kind of uh, small packing plant near Great Falls. And that particular group owned 3,000 acres somewhere between Great Falls and Belt. And the local people just fought it like crazy. And, and, and some of those people that lived in those subdivisions out there, they had every excuse it was going to pollute their wells and all. And this was going to be a pretty, a pretty modern plant, and, but being able to handle both hogs and cattle. And, uh, and, and they gave it up. And so that is the kind of thing you're, I mean, you can, you can mean mouth packers all you want, but they have to jump through all the hoops, make very, you know, uh, produce these cattle under the extremely uh, clean circumstances, and then the cattle have to be inspected live, make sure they're healthy going in, and then, and then, like if there's a tiny little bit of, of uh, you know, paunch uh, residue it, that that's got to be cut out, and it just it so it, it and, but and then and then nowadays they they used to have a E. coli problem, but now they spray those uh, all those carcasses are sprayed. I think it's with lactic acid to to prevent that thing. But these things are are difficult for a small plant. I mean, these things are expensive technology, uh, and it and so in order to even halfway compete, they can't afford this really high tech stuff that's going on. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Our friends at Whipley sponsoring today's podcast. We're going to be back with our friend Ed Lord right after this. You deserve to work with an accounting firm that understands that agriculture is a way of life as much as it's a way to make a living. At Whipfley, we not only understand tax law, but also the agriculture industry. Our dedicated team of ag professionals can help you navigate tax complexities, help your farm or ranch operation with accounting and payroll setup, and assist with specialty tax services like R&D studies and more. So whether you need tax planning and preparation or traditional accounting assistance, call one of our offices or visit whipfley.com today. Again, a big thank you to our friends at Whipfley CPA and Consultants for sponsoring today's podcast. Again, we are at the kitchen table here with Rancher Ed Lord in between Utica, Hobson, and Buffalo, Montana, a tri-city area, we could call it. And Ed, uh, as uh, you explained at the beginning of our conversation, uh, uh, really, your op- operation and ranching, uh, your career started in southwest Montana near Phillipsburg. And uh, sustainability is a big topic uh, between consumers, policymakers, uh, decision makers, and ranchers uh, here in 2021. And those of us in the industry, we know the important role that farmers and ranchers play as stewards of our land and our natural resources, because we have to have those natural resources to use next year. And this year was a tough year for many producers uh, with drought and grasshoppers and, and no rain, especially here in Montana. But when you look at sustainability, 
when uh, when did the word sustainability, uh, when you first heard the term sustainable agriculture, did you think, well, I've been doing that my whole life. When, when did you first hear the term sustainable agriculture, I guess? It, that's a little hard to say. It, it, I know it's been within the last five years and maybe the last three. Uh, so, uh, but the fact that I heard about it, I, I, I don't think it changed the way we, we ran cattle. We knew we, we knew we had to have grass and water for next year too. And so, and this is a great next year business. I mean, you, you know, if, if you don't do well, then you try to do better or figure out how to run them a little cheaper or something. So you, cause, cause we love it. And, and we want to, we want not only ourselves to be able to continue to do it, but our kids and our grandkids. Well, and you focus on that, your kids and your grandkids. What did it mean to you to know that uh, your daughter and, and her husband wanted to stay in ag? You had the perception that, well, I, I don't think uh, any of my girls want to be involved in ag. What did that mean for you to know that uh, that next generation is still involved in production agriculture? It, it meant a lot to me. I mean, that I actually, when I sold the ranch at Phillipsburg, I did what's called a 1031 exchange. and. Yep. And and bought the ground in the in the Hobson area, and it mostly was farm ground. Of which I, my original intention was just to lease it out to neighbors, and and that worked very well for a while. But it was icing on the cake when my daughter Audrey and Stan wanted to come back and manage the whole south uh, part of our operation over here, and so that and and. That's the most enjoyable part of my life right now is coming over and helping them uh, in the summertime, uh, you know, make progress to put in water systems and to be able to best utilize the resources that we have here today. You know, um, when when you look at that next generation of producers, whether they're coming right out of college and maybe they're they're starting off as a hired hand somewhere and they're able to run 20, 30 cows with an operator that they're working for, or they're 40 years old and coming out of the agribusiness or professional sector and and running with their family, or maybe they're a sixth generation operator or they're they're a first generation operator. Uh, What are some tips you have for them? Uh, Just about, obviously hard work is, is number one, but uh, looking at it now with your years in the business, what what are your tips for young men and women that want to be involved full-time or part-time in, in ranching? Um, it's Being part-time is a little bit different than being full-time. I mean, I always said I uh, uh, that I think I thought a person, in order to have a decent standard of living, to be keep shoes on your kids, to be able to put them through college, you probably had to have at least a 300 cow operation, unless you were running purebred cattle, really, and and uh, or something similar, so you could sell high value. Uh, but many of these operations uh, are supported by off off farm or off ranch jobs. Uh, the statistics show that only five percent of the people that are in the cattle business make their total living on cattle. Uh, most of, a lot of them are, uh, they would run, uh, you know, a crop operation and cattle that, you know, if you want to work that hard, uh, that, that's probably the most profitable because you can use a lot of crop residue and, and you got to figure out how to run these cows is, you know, pretty cheap, uh, or, or less than, 
it's real easy to put a lot of resources in. And so that, uh, and so we kind of kind of split it out between a part-time operation and, and but many people uh, would, you know, the wife is teaching school, has a good job in town and has health insurance, that's huge these days uh, and then and then that, that allows the the husband or the partner to, uh, to you know to work full-time there's always more to do than you can get done on on a ranch uh, you never you never get everything done you have to prioritize and and uh, no I don't think anybody ever feels satisfied that they got all their work done mm -hmm. there's always a reason to get up in the morning yep well, and that's just, I, I don't even, I can't even consider myself a half-time rancher, uh, living in Bozeman as I have, but now we're, we, we bought, we, we, my wife and I wouldn't be able to move back to central Montana and buy our little ranchette homestead, if you want to call it that, with the amount of acres we bought, if it wasn't for that off farm and ranch income, but that's the positive thing with COVID is having that ability to work from home, uh, as my wife and I, and I, again, we, we have a one month old baby. Um, so my wife's on maternity leave, but that, that's been our goal is to get back involved with family operations because uh, we know we're not going to make a lot of money at it and we may never make a lot of money at it, but it's important for us to have our daughter grow up the way we did, um, with those values, hard work and understanding <laughs> what, uh, both generations of our family have done. So that's, that's important for me. Um, and as, as we look at uh, being involved in agriculture organizations, I, I, I want to kind of talk about uh, your involvement with the Montana Stock Growers, maybe also your, your work on the national level. When, when did it occur to you? When did you find the time to, to become active with the Montana Stock Growers Association and, and understand how important it was to, to take a few years to be an advocate and a leader for Montana's number one industry? Okay, that, that's a good question. I was a one-man show just about for a long time, but we had the opportunity uh, to expand our operation over in Phillipsburg. Um, we, we traded the timber on the home place for another ranch, so to speak. But that enabled me to hire full-time help, and that's, that occurred in about mm, 70... Five, I think, uh, 1975, and then that freed me up, and I always wanted to participate uh, in stock growers. I was been I've been a member of Montana Stock Growers since 1960, so uh, some, that's something over 60 years. And uh, but but I got active and got elected to the board in about 80, 1982, and then progressed from there. So working your way through there, you, you got on the board when, when U.S. agriculture hit its roughest patch since the Dust Bowl. Um, the 80s, high interest rates, uh, the drought that came along with that, uh, a lot of multi-generational operation, family operations ended at that generation. Um, what were some of those challenges that uh, you saw people go through and uh, what 
how how are we learning from those especially what we're going through here currently with uh, cattle prices and drought what 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 being a leader during that hard time what how important was it for the stock growers to have a voice i was very lucky i guy told me one one time is, is luck is being lucky is a whole lot better than being smart <laughs> and so but but connie and i were in debt uh you know pretty deep when we first started out because dad Dad said either he was going to run a ranch or I was, and he turned it over. to. And so I had to buy the cattle, buy the machinery, and so owed a lot of money. He loaned me some. The bank the bank loaned me much more. And, <laughs> but I was really fortunate in that we got, we got the debt pretty well paid down before interest rates got to that 18% yep. bracket. And that, that killed a lot of people or really made it tough because people would try to bring another generation in, buy land at high, and, but particularly trying to finance it at those, those rates. And, and then, then, like you say, the prices went down. We were in that portion of the cattle cycle. And, uh, and it was tough. It was tough for a lot of people. And, and, and there, were, there were quite a few ranchers didn't make it or younger people. And they had to kind of start over again. But I was really lucky. And, and, and like I said, my dad, dad, dad and, uh, he, and he got into politics. I mean, he uh, was a, a representative, Mark, and then he got a job. Uh, he was on the State Board of Equalization. And so he was gone for about six years uh, right when Connie and I first started. And so... And uh, and I was doing all the irrigating and getting high school kids to help me put up the hay at those days. And so, uh, but but hard work never hurt anybody. So how, how did you put hay up at first? Well, with beaver slide stocker. Yep. You know, and uh, early on. But but one of the things in that country over there, the it gets more snow, but in the wind and the particular. Uh, place where we live the wind had drift and so it was really hard to move hay in the winter time dad fed with a team and uh and you know he uh, they could go about anywhere once you got a, had a sleigh trail going but then pitching hay out of a stack was was really tough and this was before i got started and he had a farm hand but he had to have to leave it at the stack and then try to start a Alice Chalmers tractor when it was 40 below zero wasn't easy, but 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 he he did her and uh, and then load those load the hay with the loader and then pitch it off the off the sleigh or wagon and so it was a lot of work. I mean, I thought I worked hard, but I know he worked a lot harder than I did. And so, well, you, you mentioned you know those beaver beaver slides and everything like that and. You know, I talked to my, I remember my grandpa talking, uh, they, they ranched a Ross Fork, uh, out that way. And then up Beaver Creek, you know, just, just east of here and north of here. And, and he, uh, that, that, he just had a better sweat, but man, was it hard to feed and put up what, uh, and yeah, it's great to see those historic pieces out there, um, when you're driving, especially in Southwest Montana. And, and I know in the big hole, that was, uh, they were kind of the last holdouts, uh, of putting it up. I don't know if many folks even did, did did many folks even put up hay that way anymore? Yeah, they they do. I mean, big the big holders they're different, but <laughs> but they they're they're fun bunch to be around. They, they they think they can do anything, but they 
they built great big beaver slides and then and then run them up with you know uh, wind a winch to pull the cable up and and they they throw that and then have have a bunch of these bull rakes out running around out in the field and and they put up hay awful fast they they did have to have about 10 kids working for them and and that and that's the problem with uh, that I saw putting up loose hay is, is it's a great way to do it cheap but it took big crews but then I migrated into round bales finally um, and what year was that do you think oh would have been I didn't because there's there wasn't a good way to feed them out when yeah. when they first came out but when they when we figured out really good ways to feed the round bales back out with either the, uh, the we we I like to use the degrees slicers because it would it didn't take much power and and that was a really good way to feed fence line with them too. But when you use these type the the choppers, they that was pretty popular and they you know one one man could feed four or five hundred cows and still come in for lunch yep. Yep. with that system. And so it it and it and still more than half the ranchers are using round bills yet today. Well, again, those uh, uh, stacking hay that way. Um, I remember watching, I think it was Backroads of Montana, and it was Fred Hershey's crew, uh, Jack's son. They were putting it up in the big hole there. And I, I don't I don't think Fred probably puts hay up that way anymore. I could be wrong, but uh, I know some of the Hershey's do in that country. But uh, jumping back uh, into our conversation about leadership, obviously you said you, you jumped on the Stock Growers Board in the 80s. Early 90s uh, is, is when you became president or, 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 or yeah. vice president. Yeah, I, uh, again, stock growers has been awful good to me. I, I had the opportunity, I uh, got appointed to the very first uh, Beef Promotion Research Board as one of three uh, people from Montana. And that was, would have been 1986. And, uh, and that enabled me, it gave me opportunities that I never dreamed of when I first started. I mean, I... I got to I got to personally know some of the giants in the industry, Kenny Monfort, uh, Joanne Smith, uh, Paul Engler, uh, Bob Joshman. Just just to mention about four that every, everybody knows. And 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 here I was a you know almost a punk kid at at fifty years old or so uh, to be able to associate with those people. And it, it, it was just such an opportunity to me, and I and and I still am tickled about it to this day. Well, you talk about uh, being a part of that beef promotion board, and there is a lot of discussion about beef promotion and the checkoff and, and the dollar that producers in Montana and other states pay. Um, um, with that, what what is your rebuttal or what is your view of the checkoff thirty years later? Well, in in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, if you're not willing to spend a dollar ahead to promote your product, you know maybe you're in the wrong business. Uh, it, it's 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 very small amount of money. It was more money than those days because because prices have gone up, but still it's just a dollar. So we had to be very efficient in how we spent that money and. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize how hard the people uh, on the beef board 
and the operating committee, they spend a lot of time figuring out how can we make the money that we earn or take in uh, do the most for the industry. And and we've done a, done a lot. I mean, I think the uh, you know, old BQA is uh, uh, was started with beef board money and just a lot of things. And the and the other example is how to how to cut up cattle, how to how to make better cuts out of some of the ones and and the flat iron steak. Just an example that was was promoted or uh, discovered with the research being done on 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 how to utilize carcasses and so i i think that I, and every all the all the, the research indicates that we're really getting a you know good good return on the money that we spend on the checkoff uh we we're not into tele although montana beef council has gotten back into yeah. doing some tv work that was very expensive i mean we we hired sybil shepherd and uh and then later on, James Garner. Well, Sybil Shepherd didn't have the best reputation. She turned out to be a vegetarian, and <laughs> and uh, James Garner had a heart attack. So, but uh, but they were very popular people at the time, and so and you know, in retrospect, maybe we could have done better. But but that's the choices we made. Yep. Well, again, uh, when I look at. Uh, proteins out there obviously i've grown up eating beef i'm going to raise beef i'm always going to eat beef and now i think more than ever we have to promote our products when we see fake meats out there whether that be the plant-based uh impossible burgers or the talk about uh, uh, uh test tube raised meat um cell cultured meat and, and i will never ed i will never tell someone what they can and can't eat i, I i'm just you know some people i will i don't like bud light but i love coors light <laughs> you know i'm not gonna tell you you have to drink coors light if you come to my house that's the only thing that's there but I, I just think that's the freedoms we enjoy here in the United States. But I disagree when people are out there promoting fake meat as beef and meat and burger. That's just Lane Nordland, wannabe broke ranch kid that talks for a living's opinion on things. Um, to you, is it is it more important now than ever to to be promoting our product to consumers out there? And I know you can't use checkoff money to lobby against other uh a food that's a usda uh statute you can't lobby against another food group uh, even though i don't think it should be called food i get that but how important is it for us to promote those products right now well well i i think it's really important you know the thing that we have to remember is the other proteins that is the chicken and the hogs we will never ever produce uh beef as cheaply on a per pound basis as as they can produce chickens or hogs chickens convert about one and a half pounds to uh, to a pound of finished chicken hogs i think it's about four to one you know we do well to get get below six to one in terms of of grain to end up so so we have to produce a product that people would prefer over our protein competitors and we've done very very well just a few years ago less than half of the cattle are uh, graded choice now 
we've got over 80% of the cattle grading choice and prime. Uh, just a few years ago, you know, we did well to get 3% of our cattle to grade prime. Now we've got about 10% of our cattle grading prime. We're, we're producing the, and what, and this came about, uh, the, the, again, with checkoff money, they did a lot of testing, they, they did a lot of research with consumers. One out of four stakes, even grading choice, were not acceptable. What's wrong? How do we how do we improve that? I mean, when people pay a lot of money for a stake, they want a good one, mm-hmm. and and but but they're willing to pay quite a bit of money on a comparative basis for a good one. And and I think we're to that point now, Lane. Uh, like with with that higher percentage of cattle grading choice and prime, and we've changed the genetics. Just you know, we figured out that that there are certain breeds of cattle and certain cattle within us in a given breed produce a higher percentage of of marbling or, or more marbling, which which is able to uh, produce these choice cattle. Well, I'm going to ask you about consumer preferences, but we're going to take a quick commercial break right now, and we'll be back with Rancher Ed Lord right after this. NCBA is leading the fight for the rights of cattle and beef producers across the nation. From leading the charge to protect the cattle industry from the impacts of COVID-19 and delivering CFAP relief for cattle producers, NCBA is working for you each and every day. NCBA is seeking new opportunities for profitability for cattle producers and protecting you from government overreach. If you're a member, we thank you for your support. If you're not a member, we'd like you to join us. Just call 1-866-BEEF-USA or visit ncba.org to join today. Uh, we're turning back uh, with uh, Ed Lord. Ed, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, the beef end of things, uh, those cattle that we produce, that end product. How have consumer uh, perceptions and input on what kind of beef they want to eat? How, how important is it for, for ranchers from the cow-calf sector, the stocker, the feeder, the backgrounder, the, the uh, packing uh, operators? What, how important is it to have input from those uh, consumers and understand them, but also how important is it for producers on all levels of the supply chain uh, to have that interaction and and educate them about our product and whether that's using checkoff promotion or just one-on-one promotion? Well, it's again, Lane, it's my opinion that when you buy bulls or you produce cattle, you, you ought to visualize what that end product is going to be. One of the one of the problems that we're having right now is the carcasses are too big, because the, you know the the ribeyes are so big that they cover a whole plate. Well, the average housewife can't eat that much. Can't she can't afford that much, and uh, and so the small. Actually, I think it was last summer, heifer heifers were out selling as fed cattle. Heifers were out selling steers only because. They, uh, they, by and large, the carcasses were smaller, and they, they produced. So, so we have to, I think, in terms of we got to visualize what that end product is going to look like or going to, uh, how it's going to be presented to the consumer and then work in that direction to do whatever, uh, whether that be timing our calving, the genetics we're using, uh, and, and just and then how how that animal is going to be fed 
and when it's going to hit the market. All of these things uh, should affect your thinking on, on you know, when you calve, what breed you use, how big your cows are. Uh, would you be better off to produce more smaller calves, calving a little later in the year, or or are you, or is the big calf that's going to go on feed and, and gain well and, and, and produce a choice carcass in the month of April? I mean, that's, that's all kinds of those, those decisions should affect how you run cows and calves and how the cattle are fed and, and, and right down the line. Now, going back to uh, your years as president of the Montana Stock Growers, what were some of the bigger challenges that uh, your leadership team faced, and what were some of the, the wins that, that you experienced uh, during that time? We had two big challenges. One of, one of them was stream access. That was a big issue right about the time. Uh, and, and we finally worked our way through that, and, uh, and, and we actually lost some members on that. But the big issue was the reintroduction of wolves. That was, the, and we fought that thing hard, and, but we could not get any help from the sportsmen. And we, we said what was going to happen is the, the wolves were going to eat the elk too. And so, and, uh, and eventually we did get help from, uh, from the sportsmen. And, and now, finally, the wolves have been delisted, and things are somewhat better. Uh, but again, we're in a big controversy at, uh, whether we'll be able to, our Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks are going to be able to manage wolves in this state, or whether the feds are going to say, nope, you've got you to keep more of them alive. So, so those are two big issues when, when I was in leadership. You know, you mentioned sportsmen and, and uh, agriculture kind of working together there. There are uh, um, sportsmen groups out there that, uh, you know, they, they have members that understand farming and ranching and uh, the role that uh, producers play in habitat management and, and uh, providing, you know, uh, healthy access for animals to come on and, and, and onto their operations, whether that be on public or, or private land. But some members of those organizations Organizations, uh, they might uh, lean differently, and they might have a, a, a skewed and uh, a, a negative uh, aspect of agriculture. And, and I, I see this a lot on, online and uh, in dialogues from some of these sportsmen uh, group members. How important is it for these groups to come together and actually realize, you know what, if it wasn't for private landowners and farmers and ranchers or federal lands grazers or state grazers, everyone truly does work together and uh, everyone benefits from the, you know, appropriate management of these lands. What, what is your message to a producer or an outdoorsman out there and why we need to respect each other and work together? Because, uh, again, we, we, we may lose total control of wolf management here in Montana because the Biden administration's reevaluating that. Well, and grizzly bears, too. True, true. They're, 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 we got grizzly bears where nobody would ever seen them before and, and up around that Shoto country in Valera, you know, the people almost hate to send their kids out to meet school bus yep. and it that and but but to get back to your issue about sportsmen and ranchers getting together one of the big issues is right now is access uh, a lot of ranchers 
uh, will have state land, for example, that would, pe people could actually hunt on if they could get access, but it's in the middle. That, that's an issue. Uh, or old roads uh, that, uh, of get, getting to public lands, th those are issues that have to be worked through. But one of the big things that's happening is a lot of these ranchers are being bought by out-of-state money and those people don't have to make a living running cattle, so th so they just uh, and and even people with uh, or organizations with a lot of elk, they'll lock the places up, and where uh, the, the people that run them before the, the legitimate ranch and uh, ranchers would allow access, and you could come in. I mean, I had that situation when we ranched in uh, over at Phillipsburg. I mean, it had a lot of elk, and it wasn't right to say no you can't hunt here and then complain about the elk yeah. so we we actively uh used block management and yep. that way they we kind of control the members we knew who was on the fish wildlife and parks would would police it in some respects so and that that improved the situation quite a bit yep. and i think i think block management is a, is a is a good way to go that accomplishes kind of what you're talking about and so that that's that's one issue, but but I think more and more sportsmen all the time recognize that these elk are spending most of the winter on private land, and and now for sure at two hundred dollars a ton you can't feed many elk. So so Ed, what uh, your involvement in Montana agriculture with the Montana Stock Growers, as you said, over sixty years a member. What has been the biggest um, takeaway or benefit that you've received from Montana stock growers? What, what is the thing that just sticks out in your mind, why you've paid your dues for 60 years plus? Well, I had somebody to represent me in the particular Montana stock growers represent me in the state legislature. I mean, there's good things and bad things that can happen if if legislation gets out of hand and stock growers his highly respected lobbying organization uh, and they team up with farm bureau and other like-minded organizations and and really and they, and they we've just been very fortunate in the past to have really uh, good spokesmen for our industry that worked for us and if people had a question, they would they would come to stock growers and ask us, you know, what how's this going to affect things? How, how how's this going to play out in the in the long term, uh, where the your industry can stay viable? But then, more importantly, I think it's really important to join NCBA because they're again they're a well-respected lobbying organization uh, on the national level, and this is something that we just have to stay on top of because there's there's all kinds of people out there that have a different attitude than we do uh and and so we have to be able to counter that that attitude in the best way possible now obviously uh volunteering your time as a leader that takes a lot of time away from your operations and truly that is you know you're investing in the association when you're doing that 
Um, but also, uh, one of the topics that, uh, that why I came out here today was obviously to talk about, uh, your, your investment, uh, for the future of, uh, the ranching industry in Montana through supporting the Montana Stock Growers Foundation. And a few months back in June at the mid-year meeting in Lewistown at the Stock Growers, uh, I was able to introduce you to come up uh, to the podium as I emceed that event. And uh, I look at this brand, the Sea Hanging You brand. Um, and you are, you're, you're, you and your family are donating this. This is a family brand to the foundation and they are, uh, auctioning it off. Uh, uh, currently it's underway online. What, uh, why, why is it important to you to, to give back to stock growers, uh, through, uh, other donations and specifically truly a, a family, uh, heirloom? Why, why, why did you choose to do this? Oh, a couple of reasons, Lane. I, I re- as, as you know, I really love the stockers, but it, it has given me opportunities that I ever dreamed possible uh, in, in terms of, of my involvement in the industry and, and my ability to learn about the whole industry. And uh, uh, as a member of Montana Stock Growers, I was able to represent stock growers at the NCBA. I was... I was actually Calcap Stalker Council chairman both for the NCA and NCBA. And then I went on later to uh, serve as Region 5 vice president. And that gave me the opportunity to, uh, to meet people from every aspect of the industry, uh, from, from packers to feeders to stalker operators. And I, and I think I, that enabled me to get really see the big picture. Cattle are run in every different kind of climatic conditions you can imagine. And, and cattle, cattle in the South don't look like cattle in Montana. But the end product has got to be the same. Uh, and so the, they're working to, to make their cattle uh, uh, with genetics that will grade higher and and we're making ours uh, we need to make ours so they come out a little bit smaller so everybody has has problems but but i think to get back to your original question it uh, personally i was able to gain a lot by, by these opportunities but more importantly both in uh, montana stock growers and ncba does so much for for the individual uh, operators that, that they cannot, we don't have time to run to Helma to testify against every bill that, that might damage us or for every bill that might support us. And yet we have very talented people to do that for us. And that's worth a lot. So let, let's talk about the history of the, the Sea Hanging You brand. As I mentioned, it, this has been a part of your family. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was your father's brand. Yes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So where, where did he pick this brand up? And uh, let's just talk about uh, who's used it over the years. And, uh, and then ultimately, the, we'll get back to the decision that the family made to, to donate it. Okay. Uh, Dad picked that brand up in about, I think it's about 1938, and then used it. And he, Dad and I agree that there's, there's relatively few letters that make good brands. They have to be open letters. C's, U's, J's, and L's are all, all sort of, to, to us, are preferred letters. So, so anyway, uh, but 
but about 1950, we started buying, as I mentioned before, we started buying a lot of light calves and running them. And hip brands actually work better for those smaller calves to brand cattle in the... Uh, and so we got another brand that we that the ranch company uses or that uh, that dad had originally and then the lord ranch company took it over uh and it, it was a hip brand it's just two j's on the hip but but the, so we didn't use the cu brand and but i gave it to uh connie's dad guy ac brooks up at his st ignatius and he used it for a number of years and then when he died I knew it was too good a brand just to let go, so I got it back, and I've kept it, and we're not using it, and it, it is an excellent brand. And so I thought, you know, how, you know, how, how, can, I, how can I help the foundation out more? And I, I talked to John Grandy and ran this idea by him. He thought it would probably work, so we're giving it a try. And, and, uh, and I would sure encourage anybody that wants a single iron brand they're very hard to come by uh, these days it's, uh, to get after it, so yep. to speak. Well, I, I, I tell you what, I, I actually tried to bid this morning, but I didn't have my credit card on me to, to register for Because right now my wife and I are looking for a, sink, for, for a good brand, too, because I thought I was going to get my grandpa's brand, and, and that, that didn't uh, play out. So we're, we're looking at stuff, though, too. But, you know, I, I, I just think uh, I remember trying to remember what I said at the stockers meeting that, you know, th- these are a part of our family history. And it's a part of Montana history and whatnot. So I just, I, I just think it is so great that, that you and, and your family have said, you know what, this has been a great brand for our family. But you know what, we're, we're going to continue to invest in, in that future cattlemen or women uh, that, that may come up in the next five years, 10 years, or 100 years. Because we, we have to have a strong foundation. And, and you know, a cliche aside, we have to have a strong foundation for the future of our industry in Montana. And, and that starts through the association, but also through that Stock Growers Foundation. And uh, for our listeners, uh, this is occurring in the fall of 2021. So if you're listening to this conversation five years from now, uh, the auction wraps up November 17th, 2021. Um, but... Uh, go online to the Montana Stock Rivers Foundation. Uh, you'll, you'll probably be outbidding me by the, by the time you listen to this, <laughs> once I get my bid in there. Um, but it, it's, I tell you what, it's a great way to, to support the foundation, gr- get a unique brand. You can't go to the Department of Livestock and to the brand's office and, and pick up brands like this anymore. Even though it's a re-record year, you, you can't just walk into the office and get a one iron or a two character brand. You can't even hardly find a three character brand half the time now. Uh, so, so uh, Ed, I, I appreciate that. And, and I know folks are going to be eager to, to participate and in, in, in run Lane Nordland up. I'll, I'll probably have to kick off the bids here pretty soon here, even more, get, get, get somebody going. But uh Ed, we've been talking for over an hour here, and I know we got to go shoot TV, and I need you to let you get back to your day. But, you know, we, we look at the ups and downs, the ups and downs in the cattle business, in the cattle cycle. What is your advice for producers of all ages in the good times and the bad? What, what are the best ways, to, what are your tips to become the best operator you can be during the, the good times and the bad to stay in business? Well, it obviously... You got to watch your cost. I mean, a lot of people like iron, and and this you can't afford the very 
top of everything, so to speak. And, 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 it, and that's as it needs to be. I mean, if it was easy to make, a business, uh, make it in the cattle business, everybody would be in the cattle business because it's just a fun way to live. So, uh, but, but it doesn't work that way. And now there's not a lot of us in the, left in the business. But, but you have to be passionate about it. And you have to, you know, it, it ain't easy. So you, you, and you have to, you have to dedicate your, your life to working hard. Uh, and, but more important, thinking hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, people don't like to do it, but, but you need to spend more time reading, listening, Figuring out, running the pencil to, to, to figure out how, how you're, and every ranch is different. Your basic resources on every, every ranch is, the, none of them are alike. So, you know, and here we're, we're really working on, on intensive grazing, moving these cattle around a lot. Uh, this year, stock water has been a real problem for us. We had springs dry up that had never been dry before. So we had to go to a different spring. Right now we got three-quarters of a mile of pipeline laying on top of the ground just to, that we'll uh, to, to, to supply our pipelines with a different source of water. It, it's just you gotta, got to keep thinking. Gotta, it's got to pay. It's got to work. Well, again, we're here at the kitchen table with Ed Lord. We, we've talked quite a bit today. I, I've, I've had you all over the prairie here going in and out of the sagebrush and off the trail. But, Ed... Uh, any last thoughts that you just want to share with our, our listening audience here today? Well, I, this industry has truly been good to me. Uh, it's, it's enjoyable. It's a great way to raise a family. And, but it's, but we've got to remember it is a business. It's just not a, it's not a fun thing and it's got to be looked at as a business. And so I'd, I'd say that's push the pencil. Well, again, uh, Ed Lord joins us here today. Uh, I would encourage everyone that's interested in learning more about the Sea Hanging You brand, make sure and visit uh, the Montana Stock Growers Foundation online. We'll be seeing everybody in Billings, Montana in the middle of November for this year's convention. And uh, again, uh, thank you to, to Ed and, and his family for allowing me to come into the home, sit here at the kitchen table, and, uh, and uh, have a great conversation. Ed, thanks for joining us here today. You bet. Thank you. All right, friends, that'll do it for today's agriculture conversation from the kitchen table here on the LaneCast Ag Podcast. I'm Lane Northland. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Northland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Northland Ag Broadcaster and NorthlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.